What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. And it's been a minute. So I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and your new year is off to a great start. I missed you, but like I said in that last little update episode that we're back and I have a ton of great episodes for you with some amazing guests. There's so many great books that we're talking about. I'm doing some more bonus episodes, but yeah, today it is actually a returning guest and he's the first guest of 2022. It is none other than David Robson. All right. So today, today at the time of releasing this, his brand new book, The Expectation Effect is out. All right. So it has two separate release dates right now. It is out in the UK, but it will be out, uh, I believe next month in the United States. But anyways, I absolutely love this book. Uh, David, uh, I was bugging him. I'm like, Hey man, when are you going to have review copies of your new book, the expectation effect? And yeah, he sent it to me a little while back. I binged it and loved it. So some of you, uh, heard my conversation with Eric Vance about his, uh, his book, suggestible you, and it's kind of similar. And I was expecting this book to have a lot of the same things in it, but David absolutely blew my mind with this book. And it's all about how our expectations shape our reality and it can actually have physiological changes. So we talk about some studies around, uh, you know, like the placebo effect. And one of the questions I asked David is how, you know, him doing all this research and even knowing about the placebo effect, how does that change how the placebo effect kind of works and how our body reacts to it? And his answer is very interesting. And he dives into that in his book. But we also talk about the nocebo effect. And that's when you have a bad reaction to something based on expectations. So we talk about COVID vaccines and the people who have had, uh, been having bad reactions and how much of that might be attributed to the nocebo effect. But there's a lot of other great topics we touch on in this. Um, because David, uh, he discusses how, you know, some of these expectation effects can actually help with the opioid epidemic, which a lot of you know, I'm very passionate about as a recovering drug addict. So it's really cool. And I, I love this conversation, but we dive into things like how the expectation effect can help us with our exercise, with weight loss, how it affects people uh, who are lower income. There's so many great topics and we don't even begin to scratch the surface of all the things David covers in this book. Like I said, is completely unique, different. He dives into so many studies that I was even unaware of. And with all the books I read, it's very rare that I come across studies that I have heard of. So it is such a fantastic book. So make sure that you head down to the description below. Make sure you're following David over on Twitter. Check out his website. If you're in the UK, grab a copy of his book. It is out now for all of you in the US. Make sure you pre-order a copy of this book. It will be out soon. And all that stuff's linked down in the description. But before we get started, if you are new here, make sure you are following or subscribed to the podcast. Make sure you're following me over on social media. All my links are down in the description. It's at the Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. And, and some of you are actually listening to this episode early because if you are a paid subscriber, it's only five bucks a month or $50 for the year, you get all of the episodes early. So that is linked down below. You just subscribe over on Substack. So if you want some early episodes and you want to support the podcast, Boom, win-win. All right, but anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with David Robson about his brand new book, The Expectation Effect. All right, hello, David. Welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? Yeah, really good. Yeah, thanks for having me again. <laughs> yeah, super glad that you're back here to talk about your brand new book. And I had the opportunity to read an early copy and loved it. So it's called The Expectation Effect. Can you let us know what it's about and kind of like what inspired you to dive into this topic? Yeah, sure. So The Expectation Effect is about all of these kind of self-fulfilling prophecies that we create in our lives, where our beliefs about an event or what's going to happen actually become true. Um, now, that sounds a bit like kind of pseudoscience. It could sound a bit like The Secret or that kind of book, yeah. you know, on kind of vague positive thinking. But actually, this is completely grounded in real science. You know, I, I cite something like 470 papers, at least, in the uh, to back, back this up. And it's really like these expectation effects are all based on like kind of known, plausible uh, 
physiological and behavioral mechanisms. So, you know, I'm not claiming that this is like um, that you can just think yourself rich and money will come to you. But I'm talking about things like the placebo effect in medicine, which mm -hmm. is very well known. But we now know that actually uh, similar responses can be seen in our kind of everyday health and well-being from our responses to exercise, to our responses to a new diet, even to how we age. They can all be influenced quite powerfully by our beliefs. Yeah, yeah. I uh, a while back, I think I mentioned this in my review of the book. I had Eric Vance on to talk about uh, suggestible you, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, how much more is David going to go into? And, and like you mentioned, you had so many studies and research, and like I was learning even more. And one of the first things I, I wanted to ask you too, like when you're when you do this much research, learning about it, right? Does it? Do you think like that type of stuff affects the expectation effect? Right. Like, since you know about it, like you talk a little bit about how you've adopted it, you know, in certain aspects of your life, but how does that affect that aspect by knowing? You know, I think it's actually really powerful. And that is actually what I love about all of this research is that when we're talking about expectation effects, we're not talking about kind of deceiving people, but it's actually mm -hmm. just kind of explaining the science behind these effects and kind of getting people to open their minds to the possibility that they're current beliefs might not be totally objective and then they might be able to shift them in a different direction to bring about some benefits um but that knowledge in itself can be really powerful um and so that's what i found just reading all of this research it's like i don't have to kind of uh say some kind of mantra to kind of you know force myself to believe something that isn't true like i've seen the studies i know that if i um I know that my perceptions of my fitness are going to shape how well I do. And that actually some of those responses can be more powerful than the effects of my actual genes. And then by knowing that, I can just kind of start to question some previous assumptions. So, for example, you know, in um, gym classes at school, I, uh, you know, I found them quite difficult. Like I was very small for my age, all of that kind of thing. So I kind of had built up all of these underlying assumptions about my fitness. And then seeing this body of scientific research showing that those assumptions are actually shaping my fitness now well then i can just reappraise those assumptions and wonder if i could take a bit more of an objective view and that in itself is then really powerful so it's all about almost looking at ourselves and our abilities more like a scientist and trying to abandon assumptions and then try to reframe them in a way that could be potently useful and so yeah i think that kind of understanding the science there actually kind of creates the ability to kind of change those beliefs yeah, yeah. One of the things uh, you talk about in there, like you have a whole section on like stress and anxiety. And I, I think that's uh, one place where you and I connect. Like I, I've dealt with anxiety my entire life. And I remember, you know, a few years ago, I think that's when I first kind of learned about, you know, uh, this this type of research and everything like that. But you discuss a little bit of like reframing, right? That That like anxiety, like going into a situation, whether it's like a job interview or doing a presentation and, you know, and, and how, you know, the science shows that if we just change it from like, I'm worried, I'm nervous, I'm stressed to like this kind of excitedness, like, have you, have you been able to use that since like researching this book? Have you like brought that into different situations and has it worked out for you with your kind of anxiety or nervousness? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I think the most obvious example for me would be in public speaking, which, mm. um, say for my first book, like I managed to get through that without, you know, any problems, but like, I wouldn't say it was an easy experience. Um, but then I think researching this book, I kind of uh, came to realize that, uh, like you said, that there, uh, there are kind of two views of anxiety that you could have. So one is that it's kind of debilitating and that if you're feeling nervous, that in itself is like a sign of weakness and you have to suppress that feeling mm. if you're going to perform well. And if you fail to suppress that feeling, which is really likely, then you're going to perform badly. Um, reading the research, I realized that actually that can be true, but a lot of those effects aren't inevitable from the feelings themselves. They're created by the expectations. And what you can see from the research is that actually there's a whole other group of people who still feel anxious before they perform, but they see that anxiety as a kind of energy you know it kind of mm -hmm. gives a little bit of an edge to their performance and um and that by viewing it like that that in itself then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and they do perform better and they you know feel less they feel that anxiety is kind of less unpleasant it's just a bit more they're more comfortable in that anxiety and mm -hmm. so i applied that it didn't even take much effort because like i said once you've read the research it kind of becomes a no-brainer almost and um 
and yeah, I found it really worked. And I, I think like also my experience really showed me something important about the expectation effect, which is like, you don't expect miracles to emerge immediately mm -hmm. with this. It's like anything, you're kind of learning to think in a different way. So it helped yeah. a little bit in my first talk that I gave and then helped a bit more in the next one. And over time it kind of developed so that now I actually quite enjoy giving presentations. Mm -hmm. um, but that didn't happen overnight. It was something that, you know, I had to practice. Yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, something interesting to touch on, right? Because like we were talking about like what inspired the book. And so you had like, you have books like The Secret and this kind of like, you know, manifestation and, you know, uh, this, this idea that, you know, if we just think it, it'll come true and all this. So how do we separate that? Because in the book, you talk about some other kind of like self-affirmations and there's a, you know, there's a whole section on like intelligence, right? And, you know, you, you had your, you know, your last book capitalizing on intelligence as well. But what, what do you see as a difference between kind of this, like, uh, like faux, like kind of pseudo-scientific-y, uh, just self-affirmation type thing that doesn't really do anything. And then like, you know, reframing our stress into excitement or, uh, having like that growth mindset rather than the fixed mindset. How do we separate those two? So say a listener is like, okay, what's the good stuff versus the bad stuff? You know what I mean? I mean, I think like uh, primarily I'd say the difference is whether you actually have like a study showing that it's possible <laughs> yeah. or not. But I mean, that is kind of, you know, what I based the whole, my whole premise was like, you know, I wouldn't say anything that's not supported by studies. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess that's the one thing, but I would say more generally, like, I think what the researchers and what I have been careful to do is just to try to explore the limits of our kind of, uh, of what this can achieve. And, you know, actually we do find that it all depends on kind of context and kind of, um, you know, like plausibility in a yeah. way. So like, you know, one of the things that I think is really toxic is this idea that like positive thinking can cure you of something like cancer and it can't because there's no mm -hmm. there's no biological mechanism by which your brain could um shrink a tumor like well we just don't know of any mechanism and there's no evidence that that can yeah. happen you know when you look at controlled trials like it can't but that doesn't mean that actually your brain isn't having any effect on your physiology it's having loads of effects it's just that some you know that particular thing is too bad it's too too big and too difficult to achieve um mm -hmm. but say we do know you know all the, like this is so well established that like the way you appraise an emotion will change like your horm hormonal response for instance mm. or the kind of um changes to your circulation you know whether your blood flow is kind of reaching your limbs and kind of helping to power your muscles or whether it's kind of concentrated in your core because you're scared that you're going to get injured mm. and so you know that can help change your short-term performance actually in something like a sports event or you know even something yeah. like public speaking but um so that is you know that's not like miraculous that's just the way the brain and body evolved to function so yeah I think that's the distinction really it's like we're not asking for like something that's magical here we're just like looking at things that we already know that there's this interaction between the brain and the body and then it's just like looking at kind of practical ways that we can make the most of that for our own benefit yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think what's helped me out the most, like since I really just got into like reading and learning and all these other things, is uh, just like the evolutionary reasons behind things, right? Like evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology. Like when I understand why our brains and bodies kind of developed in these ways, then like I'm geared more towards the more sciencey stuff, right? Like you know, like stuff like the secret. And they talk about like a vision board and like putting like a mansion and money in a car. It's like, okay, well, we didn't evolve for us to like look at a vision board, but can yeah. you, can you kind of break that down? You, you discussed it a little bit early on in the book to like build a foundation on this. Why did our, our brains evolve as this sort of like prediction machine to kind of get our bodies ready or in a certain state and kind of have like physiological changes within us? Yeah. I mean, it's all about adaptability and actually like a, you know, I think like our prediction machines are especially advanced, but actually, you know, like most creatures, like especially most mammals, I'm sure birds as well, have to be able to preempt what's going to happen. You know, like if they see a predator coming, their body has to like respond instantly to that threat. Um, mm -hmm. That's a form of kind of predictive processing. 
Uh, similarly, you know, if they, if an animal um, is, you know, like expecting uh, not to have enough food or whatever, then it has to be able to slow its mm. metabolism. Otherwise, it's going to starve more quickly before it can actually get food. You know, so this is like essential for our survival. I think what makes humans um, special is that we have all of these tools like language. Um, mm. You know, we're more socially perceptive to like the kind of um, context of the people around us, you know, and the, uh, what they're communicating to us. That means that actually like our the brain's predictions can be shaped by a huge number of factors. And also we have more detailed memories that might be feeding into this prediction machine. So, uh, but essentially, yeah, the brain just has to be able to like form predictions to, for instance, to be able to like uh, allow us to kind of adapt to like a, a threat or or to adapt to like a more positive challenge. So, you know, mm -hmm. running away from a predator compared to like uh, running towards the kind of um, deer that you're trying to hunt, you know, like yeah. it's quite similar responses in the body, but also subtly different because one is protecting you from injury and the other is trying to maximize your physical performance, you know? So yeah, I just think like it, it's, we, we evolved to do this, to be able to, to adapt to any situation that's in front of us. And with all of these tools like language, we are now ab able to kind of just shape those predictions and feed into them in ways that can be helpful for us. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, part of that too, and we talked, uh, you talked about like, you know, the fight or flight response and like the fear mechanisms. And, you know, <laughs> this is very relatable to me right now because you, you discuss a little bit about like kind of how something like exposure therapy might help. So, so quick little story for the reader or the listeners who aren't up to date. So I've been dealing with a rat problem and I'm recording this in a hotel room, right? But the first sign, the first sign of a rat, I noticed that my anxiety was through the roof. Like afterwards, after we got rid of it and went out over our balcony, we managed to get it outside. But I noticed that my my anxiety was just like up just for like an hour afterwards. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, why is this happening? Like, why am I so anxious about this? And you know, uh, there's evolutionary reasons. Like there's certain things, like if we even think that we saw a snake out of the corner of our eyes, we like jump and, you know, and all that. But anyways, anyways, since I've been dealing with this problem for so long now, like I saw a rat, you know, before moving in here and like, I'm fine with it. Right. So it's kind of like getting used to it. So anyways, what I'm, what I'm getting at is how does our brain kind of adapt and turn you know, fear into something that's a little bit more normalized. Like why does exposure therapy help changing this sort of prediction machine that we have in our brain, in our head? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, um, so I think that that's another sign of ad adaptability in a way, because I think like, you know, we have all of these connotations of rats that like they're dangerous, they're carrying, I mean, like, I think they can actually be physically dangerous. Yeah, know, yeah, like I'm not it. playing with it, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also, you know, that they carry disease, so we have this kind of disgust response. But what exposure therapy is doing is over, you know, each time you see one and you emerge unscathed, it's kind of just adapting that prediction machine, recalibrating it. So, you know, that actually you still have to be cautious, but you don't have to be as scared as you would have been before. Maybe you don't have to pump so much adrenaline into your body because mm -hmm. you know that it's maybe not as bad as you saw. Um, in a way, that is just like um, a kind of exposure therapy is a very basic way of reframing mm -hmm. the feeling of threat that you had. And I guess then when we're talking about like uh, the benefits of reframing our stress, um, our views of stress or whatever, that's almost like even a more sophisticated way of doing that for situations that are maybe more, less uh, kind of, um, how could I put it? Like, you know, like I think uh, the seeing a rat is quite, you have got a primitive response to it. Yeah. But whereas like maybe talking, public speaking is something that's more kind of um, socially nuanced maybe. Mm. So yeah, so I guess that's, they're all on a continuum. But I think what, each thing is doing each step that you take in either case it's just like recalibrating like the brain's predictions of what threat it's facing or what challenge it's facing mm -hmm. and what it can do to kind of adapt the body to respond in the best most efficient and most um efficacious way possible yeah yeah for sure and yeah it's it's really been interesting um you know because i've, I've tried to be very mindful of that that kind of stuff i'm just like for example public speaking was something terrible for 
you know, for me as well. And I used to work at a rehab and, you know, they tossed me in there. They're like, oh yeah, by the way, you're going to be doing groups in front of like anywhere from like 50 to hundred people. And I'm like, wait, what? Right. And at first it was terrible. And then I started getting used to it. I started getting excited for it and all that, just as I started doing it more and more and more. And I try to challenge myself and do new things and all that. Um, but one thing I, I was really interested in uh, talking with you about, and we could spend the, the whole time talking about this, is medications, right? Like the placebo effect and all this. So something uh, that I, I read about and started really diving into was the placebo effects and medications and specifically antidepressants. And then I started learning more and more about it, right? So you know, with antidepressants, I started learning that, you know, with a lot of the studies they've been doing, it's hard to account for how much the medication's working versus the actual placebo effect, right? But, you know, uh, as a recovering opioid addict, like I was addicted to pain medications, it's been really interesting learning about how pain medications, and since our brain naturally creates certain chemicals that help alleviate pain, like, that can help as well. So there's a lot of like ethical questions around, you know, medications and do we, do we tell people or do, or do we not? And you touch on this a bit in the book. So can you kind of discuss that and what, what they're researching as far as placebo effects and some of the ethical questions, because there's like informed consent, right? Like how much does this medication actually work and all that and all that stuff. It's just really, it seems really tricky and nuanced for me. Yeah, no, it is. And I think like what you touch on is really important, which is the fact that in the past, like we associated placebos with deception. And it seemed like the only way we could benefit from the placebo effect was if we kind of fooled people into thinking they were receiving a real medication when they weren't. Um, but actually, like what the new and really cutting edge research is doing is showing that deception isn't necessary. Um, so one one thing that I find really promising is this idea of open label placebos. And mm. what the researchers did was that they uh, kind of gave people these, um, well, first of all, they educated people about the mind-body connection. And they told them things that have been proven scientifically, such mm. as the fact that when you receive a placebo pill, believing it's a pain medication, that that can cause the brain to produce its own endogenous painkillers so you're yeah. actually having a physiological effect from your expectation mm -hmm. um and then they gave so they told people about that and then they gave people a jar of um pills that were very clearly labeled placebo pills yeah. um so no deception there at all um what they found was that actually just taking those placebo pills um actually produced a clinically significant um improvement in their pain and what was amazing was that this didn't just last during the weeks of the trial, but then they followed up those patients five years later. And they found mm. that actually this understanding of the mind-body connection was still improving their um, levels of pain five years later. It wasn't a short-lived effect. Um, and so what I think that shows us is that actually we we can create this kind of healing response ourselves um, mm -hmm. by understanding the mind-body connection. It's like, uh, I think like uh, the ritual sometimes of taking a tablet is really important, um, even if it's a placebo mm. pill, because you feel like you're being cared for. And that might be one reason for it. But I think actually just having this positive expectation that your pain relief is controllable, that that could also be quite powerful in producing these benefits. And then subsequent studies have kind of asked, well, you know, it works with open label placebos, but can we just get rid of the pills altogether just by like talking to patients and explaining to them like how their expectations might heal recovery and getting them to set realistic but kind of optimistic um, expectations. Yeah. And they found that that was really powerful, even with people's recovery from kind of serious heart surgery, that they recovered more quickly. And they also showed kind of changes in their physiology, such as reduced and um, levels of inflammatory cytokines as mm. a result of that intervention. So, I mean, it's really powerful. And I think this is how medicine needs to use the placebo effect now, not by kind of lying to patients, like that's not ethical, but yeah. just by actually helping to incorporate the expectation effect into each treatment. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because something that I, I think about a lot, I write about, you know, on my substack and everything, it's just the the American healthcare system, because something that I've realized is, you know, and I think a lot of Americans do is that 
this is just get people in, get people out, right? It's all just like boom, 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 right? And I have been very fortunate to find a primary care doctor, um, like for the last, probably had it for like five years where she actually sits down and takes the time with me, right? Like I, whenever I'm like, you know, singing my doctor's praises, I, I always talk about how when I go there for an appointment, she's always late, but I'm never mad because I know that she's probably talking to people mm. at length, the way she talks with me. And that's so beneficial and kind of like with what you're, you're talking about with, if we just explain it to people, right. And, and reading books like yours is very helpful. I've, I've realized that with myself, the more I understand about just the world in general has helped me in a variety of different ways, whether it's, you know, this stuff or psycho, uh, psychology, mental health, whatever it is. And one thing I loved about the book, and it's, you know, cause I do a lot of advocacy work for, you know, uh, addiction and everything is you talk about how placebos might actually be able to help with like the opioid crisis. And you touched on something there, like this idea of just like being cared for and things like that. And when I first started learning about just the body responses and like dopamine and everything, it clicked for me. And, you know, one of the things as a, as a drug addict, when I was in my addiction and I ran out of drugs, right? I'd call my dealer and he'd be like, oh, I'll be there in five minutes. He takes like two hours. But as soon as I knew he was getting close, boom, my body started to calm down, right? I started to get a little euphoria before I even took the damn thing, mm. right? So when it comes to pain management, the opioid epidemic, because, you know, a lot of this started in the United States with that direct to consumer marketing saying like Oxycontin isn't that addictive and all that. How do you see, you know, the placebo effect and pain management helping to decrease the amount of like addictive medications that we're giving to people? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of promise here and I've seen a few studies. I mentioned one of them in my book, but there have been, you know, moving so fast that there have been more um that have been published since that show that actually open label placebos can help to wean people off of um, addictive kind of painkillers. Um, so what they did actually was a bit like this study I described previously. So they were, you know, open label, the participants knew exactly what they were taking, but they'd also boosted this effect by, um, by using this process called conditioning. So uh, what happened was for a few days at the start of the trial, the um, patients took their regular painkillers along with the open label placebo along with um a kind of they just sniffed like a a kind of um swab of um that like absorbed of i guess cotton wool that had absorbed like a strong scent of cardamom mm -hmm. uh, then after a few days they were encouraged they weren't forced but they were encouraged to just ditch the actual original pills and to just take the open label placebos along uh, with the smell. Yeah. And what they found was that that kind of conditioning, the association of the strong smell with the painkillers, that that actually amplified the benefits of the open label placebos. So it's really, it really did help them to reduce the amount of pain medication they were using, um, you know, because now they were just relying on the brain's own endogenous opioids. And so that actually helped them through rehab for their injuries. And the hope is that if you could do that quite quickly, people won't get addicted to the pills in the first place. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of promise there. We do need uh, bigger trials, but I do think those are happening like all the time. And, you know, I haven't seen any negative results here, actually. So I really think that there's, they might have to refine the techniques, but I really think like, this is such a promising direction for the research to take. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something that, you know, I, I, I think about a lot because when, when I was, I was personally in my addiction, like, you know, I was, I was mainly taking them to get high, but after a while, like they weren't even doing anything for pain. Like when I would actually have pain, they weren't even doing anything. But then I started realizing like, these pain medications, they were mainly just, you know, giving me a, a sense of euphoria, but they weren't attacking the cause of the pain, right? Like if I have a back injury, it's not going to fix my back. It's not going to fix my muscles. It's not going to fix my spine. Like there are uh, medications that are like muscle relaxers, but like an actual opioid isn't getting to the root of that problem, you know? So, so it's, it's, it's this strange thing because so many people get hooked from getting these medications for pain, but it's not even tackling that specific problem. So if we can create that effect, we're getting the medications. But, you know, speaking of pain and these placebos, one ethical question I'm always thinking about was, I can't remember if you touched on this in the book, but there was a, a surgeon, I think he, he worked on like basketball players' knees or whatever, but they were doing like, 
you know, uh, like torn ligaments, like that kind of like invasive kind of uh, surgery. But he started wondering, like, how effective is this? So he started going in and not actually doing the surgery, but he would like drill the holes in their knee where it looked like they did. And they recovered just as well. So that's the ethical question I'm always thinking of, because you have like these open label placebos and all that. It's like, okay, cool. But this involves actually like puncturing skin, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious your thoughts around like, you know, that like the, the pill sort of placebo and then like a placebo surgery. What, mm -hmm. what are the conversations around that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's loads of research showing that actually, <laughs> like placebo surgery is really potent. And one of the reasons for that is that, um, uh, in general, like, you know, it's good, you know, like, when you take a pill, you feel like you're getting kind of the care you need. And you can kind of have this idea that the chemicals are kind of changing your body in some way. But actually, mm -hmm. it's really easy to visualize what surgery is doing to kind of relieve a mechanical problem, you know. So that ease of understanding and visualization actually does mean that often surgery is an incredibly potent placebo. Now, in the past, actually, unlike drugs, surgical procedures didn't need to go through um, controlled clinical trials, part of, mm. because of the uh, ethical questions that you raised, you know, like, it's difficult to justify giving someone a kind of sham procedure where you're actually puncturing the skin and maybe, you know, raising the uh, slight risk of like a complication or an infection. Um, mm -hmm. The problem, I, I actually now think that the evidence shows that that is unethical, that to not have the placebo is unethical, because what's happened is that we've now found that lots of surgical procedures probably don't have any benefits above yeah. and beyond the placebo effect. Um, and so we, we're actually, rather than just having a small clinical trial where you're trying to compare uh, the two to find the result, what's actually happening now is that worldwide, you know, millions of people are on, undergoing surgery that isn't really having any direct um, physical benefit to them, that it's all coming from a placebo effect. Um, and, you know, one of the most controversial, but, um, I think it is a solid result, though we do need more research, is that actually the um, uh, installing stents to relieve angina, mm. now it seems that um, it, most, if not all, of the pain relief that people get from that and the benefits for their kind of exercise and lifestyle comes from a placebo effect, not from the surgery itself. And, you know, that is such a common procedure. So, you know, I really think actually this is something that needs to be explored in detail with like really rigorous research to make sure that people aren't undergoing surgery um unnecessarily because there are other ways then rather than undergoing surgery that no. um doctors could try to like use an expectation effect to achieve the same results yeah yeah it, it's interesting i, I just started a, a new book i think it's called for the common good it's more of an academic book i think it was like released through oxford university press or whatever but it's all about these ethical questions around like uh medicine right and as i'm reading it i'm thinking about you know the covid vaccines and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. because you you talk about like the nocebo effect and maybe that'd be that'd be interesting to touch on right so we have a lot of people who don't want to get the vaccine and you have people talking about, you know, these side effects, these spooky side effects. There's been stuff, I don't know if you ever saw this, like on TikTok, there were like, people were like, oh, look, I'm having like a seizure after I got it and everything. But the nocebo effect does the exact opposite. And you have a whole section on like mass hysteria and all that kind of stuff. So with, you know, specifically to like the COVID vaccine and the people who are, you know, anti-vax or vaccine hesitant, do, do you... Do you see the nocebo effect like taking place? How does that happen? Uh, how does, you know, just thinking about it and how our, our inner circles are talking about these types mm -hmm. of things, how is that affecting us physiologically? And could that be making worse outcomes that then make people like more afraid to get things that could be helpful? Yeah. So, I mean, the nocebo effect is super common. And like you say, it's when, you know, it's the opposite of the placebo effect in a way. It's when we expect um to experience some kind of illness or side effect from a drug then we do experience it and like the placebo effect and like the other expectation effects i mentioned you know it's coming from this mind body connection where like um we might be kind of increasing uh inflammation in the body but with these negative expectations because um you know maybe if you're expecting to be injured then it's good to have a bit of inflammation that can help to kind of attack pathogens before they manage to take hold um mm. you know it can it, cause things like headaches like i've experienced that 
that myself with my um antidepressant medications that mm. um you know like i had read the side effects it said like you might um, have yeah. quite a good chance of having headaches and i did um they were really bad migraines and then just as a coincidence i was reading a paper on the nocebo effect and you know specifically about antidepressants and i kind of saw that this was coming from ex my expectations and that realization kind of cured me of the headaches but you mm. know i know that those headaches were like totally real they're not imagined symptoms like the pain was just as real as anything else i've experienced and and we now actually know from the studies that that's caused by the release of different chemicals in the brain that can change the dilation of your blood vessels, just like a normal headache. It's just mm -hmm. the causes, the root cause of what's um, leading to those changes is your expectations rather than, say, the actual chemical effect. But yeah, so they're really common. You know, I've had them myself. This isn't something that we should ever like dismiss as just not being a real kind of sickness because like the symptoms are real. It's just the cause mm -hmm. is like psychogenic. Um, uh but I, I think like in terms of the covid vaccines actually um if you compare the kind of two arms of the trial so the placebo arm and the people receiving the active vaccines what you find is that there is a higher rate of side effects in the people receiving the active vaccines so there is something there you know when the vaccine is stimulating the immune system it can cause you to get a fever to get headaches to feel fatigue like mm -hmm. no question about that but you do also see a lower rate but still really significant about 20 percent of patients in the placebo arm also experience um those side effects too so mm -hmm. i think i think the figures are roughly 20 percent compared to 40 percent. so half of the people uh reporting side effects like headaches or fatigue you know like they may be caused by their expectations and i do think that possibly like our discussion of these in the on social media you know like it's been really common for people to be tweeting about how wiped out they are by their uh yeah. side effects you know that could over time kind of amplify the likelihood because if you know that everyone else is experiencing this you're more likely to experience it too yeah yeah it's it's really interesting because now that we're talking about it like uh i was you know i was fortunate enough to be in in some of the uh the early groups of getting the vaccine um here in the States. So when I first got it, there wasn't really much stuff out there about side effects, right? Like when I got it, I had like the first dose, like my arm was like sore the next day. Like that was it. Second dose, absolutely nothing. Still need to go get my booster and all that. But there wasn't anybody talking about it because I was really early on. So that's kind of interesting to think about because I'm wondering like if that affected anything. But, you know, one of the last things I want to ask about this kind of nocebo and all of that is we live in a time where way too many people go to like WebMD and like look up stuff, right? But you can also look up medications. Like I, I personally have to look up medications before I take anything because I got to make sure it doesn't have any kind of like narcotics or anything like that in it. But like if you had a, if you had a friend, right? If you had a friend and you know all about the expectation effect because you've been researching this book, like well, how much would you tell them to like look into this stuff, right? Because we want to be informed about what we're putting in our body, but it also might cause, like you were talking about, like getting a migraine, you know, and while kind of reading about the side effects and everything like that. So should people be doing these deep dives into all the terrible things that might happen from taking a medication or should they kind of only look into it a little and not go like down some crazy rabbit hole? Yeah, I mean, so doctors actually do, they're kind of developing some procedures where like, you know, even in your consultation, um, that they can be like, uh, they could give you the option, they'll be like, do you want to know about the side effects? Mm. Or do you not? I think they always have to tell you about the really rare, but um, or serious, potentially serious side effects Like you have to know about some risks, you know, mm -hmm. because you have to know the warning signs to look out for. And there's no way around that. But I do think with stuff like headaches, which often are caused by nocebo effects maybe you know like you could just choose like not to look into that too deeply and just kind of you know if you start to experience anything unusual then you can start looking to see if it's a problem uh to go to your doctors so mm. i'd say you know if you're happy with that kind of level of uncertainty then i would say you know don't look into it too much if you do kind of want to stay informed and i think i generally do want to be as informed as possible i still mm -hmm. think um again that just kind of a knowledge of the nocebo effect can be really helpful like it was for me when i was experiencing yeah. these migraines actually just opening my mind to the possibility that something was awful wasn't happening to my brain 
Um, but it was just my beliefs. Um, mm -hmm. That in itself actually proved to be incredibly effective at like um, neutralizing the nocebo effect. And there have been studies showing that, that like just educating people about it can be really helpful. Um, also, I'd like just look at the probabilities and kind of try to reframe them. So if you read that like 10% of people get headaches um, or get migraines, that sounds like quite a lot. You can really focus on that as like, sounds like quite a high probability. Um, you can present exactly the same information in a different way and say 90% of people um, are side effect free. Um, now again, uh, you know, like that, it's the same information, but actually that positive framing just helps to emphasize you and reassure you that like the chances are you're going to be fine. Um, mm -hmm. And just that kind of thinking can be quite effective too. So yeah, I'd almost say like, just be a little bit analytical about kind of what you're reading um, and don't catastrophize. Um, so, you know, like don't kind of just look at the, uh, what's potentially like a small risk and then look for signs of that in, you know, your experience and then kind of go on from there to kind of start kind of going into these spirals of like catastrophic thinking, like maybe just pull back a bit and get yeah. reassurance from your doctor if you can um just like ask for their advice and hopefully they'll be able to tell you a little bit more about kind of the pot uh, potential causes of what you're feeling yeah yeah i think that's i, I think there's a, a certain level of like self-awareness and knowing like you know uh what what type of thinking that you have and like are you somebody who catastrophizes and all that because you know i think a lot of the listeners and people like you and i like when we look into something like we'll we'll go and we'll like look at the probabilities and look into a little bit more information but even with like the spread of misinformation like people will just read headlines and freak out and but me if it's something that i'm not willing to dive into too deeply i don't hold a strong belief on right but if it is something that i'm going to go research a ton and help educate myself on it then you know it, it changes my uh, views and the probabilities, for example, like when they're talking about, uh, vaccine side effects or like severe vaccine side effects. Like I was just listening to that recent Joe Rogan podcast with Peter Nicola, where it's, where it's like really like all over the place with that stuff and talking about it. But, you know, I was like, okay, well, let me do some additional research on this stuff. And, uh, and even still with vaccine severe side effects or potential like fatal things it's like one out of like hundreds of thousands or millions of people you know mm -hmm. and i'm willing to look into that be like how afraid or worried should i be of this and if the probability is extremely low then i try to flip it like you're saying and look at the opposite side of that but yeah. one thing i i did want to make sure that we were able to touch on because i listened i, I was listening to the book because even though you sent me a pdf copy i i have this app that changes it to audio. Mm. I was listening on my morning walk. So you talk about food, you talk about exercise. And that's where I was like, oh man, there's so much new great stuff that I've never even heard of. So one thing, one thing that I thought was absolutely insane was I've heard of that dude that you talk about, like, uh, what's his name? Malaison, where he had like amnesia, uh, amnesia, where you can only remember like mm. for like a very small amount of time, but he was like perpetually like able to eat or not eat and all of that. So anyways, I'm explaining that terribly. Can you talk about how, like, I've been doing the trick that you mentioned, like remembering what I ate to kind of lower my hunger and my appetite. So can you, can you kind of talk about how our memory affects our appetite and that research? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I still feel like this is very much an expectation effect, even if it doesn't immediately sound like it. And I'll explain why. But yeah, so the first signs that like our brain is kind of influencing our feelings of hunger quite significantly came from this amnesic patient who's he's um henry malaysian or hm in the literature um and you know so he suffered from this form of amnesia where he couldn't form new memories so he could remember bits and pieces of his past but um he couldn't like a uh, minute to minute he couldn't remember anything that was you know that just happened to him it's like you know um he was stuck in the researchers say like a permanent present tense um from when he had his operation to um to the day he died like there were no new experiences kind of uh being stored in his brain and you know this included his meals and what they found was that um well what they kind of were asking was like does our stomach and we have sensors in our stomach that can kind of tell us if the muscles are being stretched you know if the lining is being stretched that can kind of roughly tell us if we've got food in our stomach or not but how powerful is that in actually shaping our appetite 
And HM's experience uh, suggested like it's not very powerful at all. And that a lot of our appetite comes from our memories of when we've eaten and our expectations of hunger. Because what they found was they um, they gave him a meal, um, he ate it, then they took the plate away and they gave him another meal. And, you know, if he was like, had this feeling uh, coming from his belly that he was full, uh, he just wouldn't have really eaten it. Like, you know, he would have been like, I don't know why, but I feel really full. I'm going to go now. But he ate mm -hmm. it. And then they took that plate away and they gave him a third. And he was about to kind of tuck into that too. Uh, but the researchers decided like three meals and one hour was maybe a bit much. So yeah. they kind of took it away and didn't let him have, have all of that plate too. But um, yeah, so that really showed that actually like our, our brains, like there's a huge cognitive influence in interpreting the signals from our stomach and forming this kind of feeling of appetite. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, memories are were important for, or the lack of memories was really important for uh, HM and other amnesic patients. Um, but what we find actually is that it's very much true for normal people as well. So if when people are encouraged to like actively remember what they've just eaten, um, then they tend to have like lower appetites later in the day. So they'll like snack less uh, than people who um, haven't been uh, prompted to kind of think about that specific memory. Mm -hmm. And I, I just see this as like being another form of the expectation effect because the memory of the meal is increasing your expectation of being satisfied and then that's shaping your behavior. Mm -hmm. And we actually find that things like food labeling can, you know, have similar effects. So if foods are labeled as being like very filling and satisfying, then we actually um, do experience less hunger later in the day compared to if exactly the same food is presented to people where it's labeled as this kind of low calorie health snack. Um, mm -hmm. And what's even more amazing is that's not just subjective, but it actually then seems to have this knock on effect to uh, people's hormonal response and kind of how quickly the food passes through their gut. If you if you don't think you've eaten very much, the food actually just passes through you much more quickly. And that in itself is then going to shape your kind of feelings of hunger a little bit. So, mm -hmm. you no, know, it's mind-body again. Um, and it, it actually shows that, you know, our expectations are super important in maintaining a healthy weight. Yeah, yeah. You you discussed that in the book. Like, you know, there's a difference between, you know, uh, like mindlessly like snacking on like chips or whatever while you're watching TV because you're not thinking about it and actively remembering it. But when I first got into like mindfulness medi uh, meditation, one of the things that I learned was like mindful eating, right? Like really slowing down, noticing like all the sensations, like, you know, the, the feel, the texture, the taste and all these other things and slowing down and how that kind of helped control my appetite. So when you were talking about some of the science behind that, I'm like, uh -huh, that kind of, you know, makes sense because I'm paying more attention to what I'm actually sitting down and eating. But one of the other things you touched on in that section, so I'd love it if you could like break down a little bit was how poverty kind of affects expectation and food right so so how does that work if you're if you're low income if you're living you know uh paycheck to paycheck or even worse and struggling to put food on your table keep your lights on keep a roof over your head how is that affecting like our weight and you know what we're eating and how hungry we are and all that so yeah i mean so this really relates to this kind of expectation of scarcity so what mm. um research from about 10 years ago had looked at was you know, if you give people kind of a milkshake and you tell them it's like low calorie, you know, quite insipid, but it's, you know, going to make you lose weight, that that creates this kind of sense of deprivation that then changes the expression of the hunger hormone ghrelin. So the more ghrelin you have, the hunger, the more hungry you feel. And what they found was that actually people who had been led to have this sense of deprivation had higher levels of ghrelin. Um, ghrelin is also important because it seems to kind of adjust our metabolism. It's not just hunger, but it's actually more like um, changing our energy balance. So that if you feel kind of that you're going to be deprived of foods, it seems to slow down your metabolism. And like you kind of spring Ooh. fat, basically, because you don't want to waste like your energy if you're not sure that you're going to get enough. Um, now, what later researchers did in um, a study in Korea was that they actually tried to manipulate people's sense of their kind of social status within the society. So they... Um, I can't remember exactly how they manipulated this, but they kind of made people feel like they were lower. They occupied a lower rung on a kind of the social ladder and got them to kind of really uh, like ruminate on that fact and like the consequences it was going to have for them and their prospects and their kind of wealth later on. Um, 
then they gave uh, these participants a milkshake and measured their ghrelin levels. And what they found was that actually after that manipulation, when people felt kind of poor and vulnerable and like that they might face deprivation, that they also had higher levels of um, ghrelin, even though like the manipulation of their expectations wasn't specifically about food. It was more about social vulnerability. It had the same effect as like with the um, kind of uh, insipid and low calorie milkshake. And I think that's really important, but it also ties with loads of uh, studies of animals that show that actually this is quite an old response that your perception of like where you are in like the group's pecking order actually mm -hmm. does change like your things like your metabolism. The lower and you're eating, like the lower that people are on um, or animals are even, you know, primates or even some birds are in their kind of social rankings, like the more likely they are to eat when food is available and the more likely they are to put on weight. And that's because like if you're in a vulnerable situation and you, you don't know, like if you're going to be able to get resources in the future, you might have to make the most of what you have now. Mm -hmm. And so I think in our obesogenic society, that's really important because, you know, like all of these signals that we're getting about like our value to society or whatever could be prompting this kind of response i think what's interesting about that is kind of like the self-fulfilling prophecy of it too like if if you feel like oh i don't know where my next meal is going to come from so i'm gonna overeat right now right but then again food costs money or resources or whatever it is so then you're spending more of what you barely have and then you like stay down there because you're constantly buying more and you know because then your fridge is always going to be empty if you're living like lower status or at least feel like you do so that's that's something else that's kind of interesting to think about but yeah. you know um with just a few more minutes of your time one one, one last thing i want to ask you there's so much in the book that we didn't even get to touch on which is why everybody needs to go get it but People like you and I, right? I say, no, I'm like, I am a scientifically thinking, rational human being. And people who do rituals or believe in superstitions, they are just bonkers, crazy. Like, that is ridiculous. You need to, you need to find things based in science. But you have a whole section in there about the expectation and these like rituals and superstitions. So then I'm like, okay, maybe these people are actually acting a little bit smarter than I am, but maybe I need some rituals. So how how can you know a, a ritual or superstition actually help somebody yeah so i mean there's two kind of mechanisms that work together um so i think but i think it all depends on this um sense of the kind of resources you have around you and like in a way like a superstitious belief or ritual kind of just gives you this feeling that like you have more resources at your disposal even if it's like uh from a paranormal source you know if you believe that fine um but I think what what we're looking at here is again like how the prediction machine is like looking at its kind of mental resources um and like you know and also how it can deal with stress and in both cases it's like if you feel like you've got a lot at your disposal like the the brain is kind of allowing the body and even like um kind of controlling the energy supply to back to the brain itself it's allowing you to have kind of more glucose to be released into the bloodstream you know it's allowing you mm. to kind of devote more um to the task because like it's it's not so worried about kind of reaching exhaustion if you've got like help if help is at hand you know what i mean um so like uh so these these superstitions are kind of just helping you to feel a bit more prepared they're kind of increasing your sense of discipline they're increasing the kind of uh flow of glucose within your blood they're doing all of this good stuff and they're helping you to reappraise your stress as well because what might have seemed threatening if you've got like a kind of magic spell behind you is actually like not so threatening it's more of a kind of positive challenge that you feel that you can achieve and so that actually then increases and improves performance in all kinds of fields so on cognitive tests but also on um you know sports like a uh, basketball uh free throws um they are like uh more accurate when people perform their pre-performance rituals you know um uh they there was one study looking at karaoke singing and if people performed a ritual before that they were more accurate with the singing because they had more mental focus you know like all powerful changes across the board um now what i love about this research is that it's like what they actually found is that a bit like the open label placebo is like you don't have to kind of believe in something that's not true for rituals to have an effect yeah. um it's almost like just knowing that something is a ritual um 
kind of just gives you the sense that you've got kind of more resources at your disposal. Um, so with the karaoke study, for example, you know, they perform this crazy ritual that no one really believes is like, um, it's going to produce any kind of magic effect. It was like, draw a picture of yourself, sprinkle salt on that picture, screw yeah. it up, throw it in the trash and then sing. Um, and the yeah. people did it and they scored like about 13% higher on the uh, kind of karaoke machines, like uh, measurements of their singing, you know, like it, and you know, like considering like, you know, their performances weren't pitch perfect to start with. It was, it was like a significant change, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, for me personally, like this has just shown that actually like you should, we can actually all incorporate rituals into our life without believing in magic, you know, mm -hmm. um, Beyonce like does a series of uh, specific stretches before each performance. And I feel like that's something that we could all do, you know, before a presentation or something, just like mm -hmm. um, have like cert a certain warm up that you practice like in a specific schedule and routine. So it feels kind of uh it feels regimented and it feels meaningful you know um just yeah. that kind of thing could be really helpful in our lives yeah yeah it, it makes me think there's so many uh because i read a lot of books i'm like debunking like bad science and i was thinking about like the power pose thing where that like uh i forgot what her name was she got really famous off you know the power pose makes you more confident i'm like well based on what i know about the expectation effect and stuff it seems like hey maybe doing that before you go and present, uh, do a present, uh, uh, presentation, it'll make you more confident and you go out there and you, yeah. you know, you do your thing. So yeah, some of these rituals could definitely help. And, and yeah, David, like I said, there's so much in this book. I absolutely loved it. So for, uh, we're recording this, uh, mid December. So for everybody who wants to get their hands on this book, there's two separate release dates, one in the UK, one in the U S you let everybody know when the expectation effect is coming out. Yeah. So if you're in the UK or Australia or any kind of Commonwealth country, then it's coming out in on the 6th of January 2022. Um, if you're in the US or Canada, it's coming out on the 15th of February 2022. And will it be available in audio format as well for all my audio listeners out there? Or is that mm. going to be later down the line? Uh, no, it should be. I think that's already recorded. Yep. Very cool. And and for everybody who wants to follow you, because you also, you know, you publish articles and things like that. Where's the best place to find you? Uh, yeah, so my website is um, davidrobson.me, and that's regularly updated with my kind of portfolio, um, but also on Twitter, D underscore A underscore Robson. Beautiful. Awesome, David. It was a pleasure having you on again. And yeah, I, I hope this book gets as much love and praise as it deserves. Uh, thank you. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. He is such a cool guy. And man, the only my only my only complaint about David is that he doesn't have more books out there. Uh, he is one of my favorite science writers His his curiosity and the way he does so much research and is able to find these studies like I just absolutely love it. So yeah, make sure you grab a copy of his book. Because like I said, there's so many topics that we didn't even have a chance to cover, but he dives into them in depth in each different chapter. So make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following David over on Twitter, grab a copy of the book. If you're in the UK, it is out now. If you're in the US, make sure you pre-order your copy. It will be out on February 15th. Um, and yeah, make sure you're following David and make sure you're following me at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. So I'll keep you guys up to date when the US version is out and I'm sure David will be too, but yeah, uh, follow me too. If you want to, you know, have some fun conversations. I love chatting with all of you. I love getting book recommendations and yeah, you don't want to miss any upcoming episodes because we have so, so many great guests lined up, uh, for this year. Like we're just getting started and I have so many awesome guests. So make sure uh, you don't miss any of them. Make sure you're following the podcast and make sure you're following on social media. And if you want a couple of easy ways to help support the podcast that don't cost you a penny is one, share this episode. If you thought this was a good conversation, if you thought this was an interesting conversation that I have with David, share it out there. But the same with any episode uh, with any of the guests. If you find them interesting, share them on social media. That helps a ton. It gets the word out there. And if you could take two seconds, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. The algorithms love that kind of thing. They also love when you share it. So that stuff helps out a lot. But if you want to support the podcast in some other ways, one, you can become a paid subscriber. Uh, the link to Substack is down below. You will get early uh, episodes 
for all of the conversations that we have here. And it's only $5 a month or $50 for the year. Um, you can also support the podcast by checking out some of my books that I've written over at TheRewildedSoul.com. I'm in the process of writing my next book as well. So that'll be out soon. Uh, and lastly, if you're somebody like me who uh, you know, really likes to focus on your mental health, um, better help online therapy. There is an affiliate link down below. I have personally used this service. It has helped me out a ton. So if you want affordable therapy, it's online. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. You work with a licensed therapist from your state. Make sure you check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. But anyways, another huge, huge thank you to David for coming on the podcast. Make sure you follow him over on Twitter. Grab a copy of this book. Like I said, I hope this book gets the recognition that it deserves. It is so important just for so many, so many people, as well as our healthcare system and so many different things. And yeah, kind of like we discussed in this episode, there's a lot of ethical conversations to be had as well. And I think all of us need to be involved in those conversations. So another huge thanks to David for coming on. Make sure you check out his book. And yeah, thanks for all of you for hanging out, listening to this episode of the podcast. And yeah, I will be back this weekend with a bonus episode which is on a pretty interesting subject so make sure that you stay tuned all right but yeah have an amazing rest of your day and i will see you next time